0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. And also, of course, best insight analysis in all the debates that are taking place in football. I'm Ian McGarry and joining me as ever is Duncan Castles. It's been a busy week um, as the international break comes to a close, and of course we go back into domestic club football all over Europe. Duncan, yesterday there was a meeting of the what they like to call the Premier League stakeholders at a London hotel, um, where um, our sources tell us uh, directly from uh, people in the room, as it were, there were some fiery exchanges over more than one issue regarding. um, What's been going on both this summer and what will happen coming up? Top of the agenda was the transfer window timings. And of course, as of last summer, um, as we all know, the English Premier League had decided to close their window for business on all fronts uh, just ahead of the Premier League campaign beginning. The modus operandi of this was that. They felt like all squads would be settled, play, clubs would have done their business, and therefore there was a level playing field for everyone. However, I think, um, as you will know, having listened to the podcast over the last three weeks, when, of course, clubs in England could not no longer trade nor deal, while well, European clubs could, there have been huge complaints and matters of great dissatisfaction from coaches such as Pep Guardiola um, Jurgen Klopp and also Maurizio Pochettino. Duncan Manchester City appear to have come up with a proposal which is a compromise regarding, um, what the English Premier League may well do next summer. And that would be that, uh, they could still trade in Europe until the window closes. Um, but that domestic transfers would be limited like, once again to, the um, two days before the season starts. Now, two questions for you, Dunk. One, um, is this a compromise which is likely to be um, greeted with, uh, I guess, embraced, if you like, by the other 19-member clubs uh, as a way of going forward? And two, does it actually solve the problem of what has happened this summer and last with regards to English clubs being disadvantaged by closing the window down early,
1: I think it's an interesting compromise solution that Manchester City have proposed because you have that benefit of, you know, what so does the integrity of the competition, um, not having players moving between Premier League clubs after the season has started. Um, and question marks that can arise because um, a club's bidding for a player and, and he would be potentially in the opposition lineup while, um, for one of those early uh, season August uh, matches. Um, and it, it takes away some of the advantage that you're ceding to um, the other European leagues, the handicap that, that the Premier League has um, inflicted upon itself, which is allowing, you know, sit wet as they have done, ending the Premier League transfer window early in August and giving Italy, Spain, Germany, France um, three weeks in which to buy players without having to compete with the richest league and the richest clubs in football because Premier League can no longer buy. And that, over these two seasons, um, has become very much a factor in the transfer window. Like if, you, if you go way back, to the start of the Transfer Window podcast, we pointed out that this was going to be a problem, it was going to handicap Premier League clubs, it would be an issue. Um, That has proven to be the case. And you talk to clubs in Europe, and they're very conscious of the fact that um, when they're competing with a Premier League side for a player, um, they can wait until the Premier League window is closed and one of the major competitors, or one, two, three maybe even of the major competitors if there's multiple Premier League clubs, interest in that player, their window closes, they drop out, and the price comes down because um, the money has been taken out of the market. Um, A lot, as you say, a lot of managers are unhappy with that scenario. Um, We've seen Pochettino talking publicly about it throughout um, the the post-English window period of August, saying that he was worried he was going to lose. Players in particular, Christian Eriksen, in those last few weeks, and and that uh, he was working at a disadvantage and, and he didn't like the way it was set up. There seemed to be a consensus that we were going to move back and and put the window um, in line with the European windows. However, I think um, I think that this Manchester City proposal, although it's you know and it's superficially attractive, kind of muddies the waters and. Uh, because, um, as I understand it, to overturn um, a decision, which is what the, 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 the change to the transfer window, to have an earlier transfer window in the Premier League, requires just a majority vote of Premier League teams. So 11 of the current 20 were they to vote to go back to the old system. They could do that ahead of the next summer. However, if they want to introduce a new rule, which is what the Manchester City proposal would be, because that's never been done before, that would require a two-thirds majority, or i.e. 14 of the 20 clubs, to vote in favour of it. So um, it'll be interesting to see, and, 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 it, and we have to say the Premier League have given themselves time on this. They didn't make a decision yet on Thursday when the meeting took place. They, um, they said they would look at it again in November, with the idea of probably voting in February, um, so I think they, they want to examine the implications of it, um, also work out, I, I would imagine, sing amongst them whether they could get 14 clubs to vote for that change um, before making a decision on where to go. Um, so it's I think this one's still open, um, but there's definitely a. A move within the Premier League, particularly amongst Premier League managers, that uh, the current system does not work, is too much of a handicap. Um, The benefits of uh, having your squad sorted going into the new season, um, not having to deal with transfer discussion once the Premier League has begun, are outweighed by the costs of those worries that you're going to lose players to um, overseas competitors for the final two, three weeks in which the European windows are open. I mean, in the last
0: 18 months or so, Duncan, speaking to um, chief executives and heads of recruitment at European clubs, um, when asked about the Premier League's decision to um, close the window early in this country in terms of buying and selling, um, a lot of it Uh, the responses were were laughter. One even said to me, why doesn't the Premier League just um, get the makeup on and put the big red nose and the big shoes on because they're making a clown of themselves? Um, That was one Italian uh, club senior executive who said that to me. Speaking to a couple of people who were at the meeting yesterday, I hear it was a bit tetchy. Um, I think that the smaller clubs, the promoted clubs, the clubs who generally are in a relegation fight or expect to be in the bottom Um, 10 of the Premier League like the current system, uh, because it gives them stability. They're not the ones who are going to be dealing in huge transfers necessarily and certainly huge international transfers. And they're the ones who I think were pushing through the initial legislation with regards to this becoming, um, the new rule with regard, um, where the window closes two days before the Premier League season starts. Um I think persuading those clubs and the chief executives or chairman um, of those clubs to change it entirely back to the way that it used to be might be difficult um, because they see a benefit for them. And of course, you've always got this notion of dog wagging tail when it comes to the Premier League because we know that the top four, top six clubs in terms of commercial And general revenue are hugely in front of those below them. I just wonder, though, in terms of the the Manchester City model, or let's call it that, the proposal, are we still looking at shooting ourselves in the foot because shutting down the domestic window and saying you can't transfer between clubs in England, yet you can still transfer internationally, simply means a further Uh, increase in terms of fees agents fees and everything else because again the Premier League has picked a gun to its own head with regards to their ability to trade
1: Well it's still complicated so take for example Paul Pogba um, which would have been a major concern for Manchester United um, under the current system they had that three week period in which they had decided we will not replace Pogba um, we will not sign a new midfielder at all. We're going to keep the player, um, but they still had to deal with the three weeks in which um, there were attempts to take that player, and uh, it turned out in their favour in the sense that they did retain them. But they had a they were placed in a situation where had Pogba been uh, decided to to leave and they decided to sell him because the money was so good, or um, he pushed for that move, etc. Whatever reasons. If you put them into this new Manchester City proposal, Pogba goes. Um, then they have to replace Pogba. They would then be handicapping themselves and that they would only be able to replace with an overseas-based player.
0: Well, Duncan, so, we, know
1: for, we know for sure that Christian Eriksen was on Manchester City's radar. So if yeah. Pogba,
0: under this new, again, hypothetical... Um, proposal by Manchester City, um, the player they really wanted to bring in, they couldn't do so because they couldn't trade
1: with other clubs in the Premier League. That just well, seems stupid. Christine Ericsson and another candidate was James Madison. Um, a story yeah. we broke in the podcast back in June that there was an interest in Madison, there had been an approach to his agent Madison wanted to, to meet Ligue or Solskjaer and uh, talk in person, get a better idea of what was going on before that was pursued. It, it didn't develop, but he is still a candidate for them. But in this hypothetical scenario, under the Manchester City proposal, they would not be able to take Ericsson or Madison, and they would have to move for a overseas-based player. So you're still handicapping yourself under these new rules. There, there, it's certainly an improvement in that you lose a star player, you still have the opportunity to go out and fix it, but um, you don't have you 're not able to recruit in the way you would like to be able to recruit, which you know most clubs sensibly recruit, which is look at Premier League options um, when looking for a Premier League player on top of the foreign options um, you know this this whole early transfer window was kind of an arrogant move by the Premier League and, and it was sold at the time as we're, we're going to show um, the rest of Europe how efficient this is and they will they will follow us because they'll see it's better to operate that way. Now, obviously, they don't see it's better to operate that way. They see, well, we've been handed a great advantage by the Premier League deciding to do this, so we'll take, we, will, we will exploit that advantage. The follow our lead argument is difficult anyway because it's not the case that all the the major European leagues start in the same week. It's never been the case that they start in the same week. So if you're going to set that transfer um, deadline before beginning a competition, it's it's not going to work in equivalent fashions across separate leagues because some start later than others. And the integrity of competition argument is always struck me as a bit strange because yes, you can't change, you can't have players changing clubs during that um, those first few weeks of the season um, before the summer transfer window closes anymore but they can still change clubs in January within the same league. You, you can still have a scenario where um, James Madison plays for Leicester City for the first half of the season plays for Manchester United for the second half of the season you can have a scenario where James Madison is targeted openly by Manchester United for several weeks or months before the January window opens and, and everyone is discussing that. And, uh, and, and you know, in, in this particular um, campaign, it's probably not an issue because Manchester United are playing Leicester this weekend. Um, so it's, it's quite a distance ahead. But say Manchester United were playing Leicester City on December the 20th and Madison was their transfer target. Then you get that integrity of competition issue um, in the January window. And that's never going to go away. So it, it was never a perfect solution in the first place anyway. Um, so it's, I think it, well, there's a reason why we argued that it was a bad idea when it came out and put it that way, And I think those, those reasons have been um, amply demonstrated in the two summers in which the Premier League has had to work with that um, handicap imposed upon itself. Well, Duncan, um, if the city proposal is approved, uh, and
0: we reckon that there's a well, we know there's a meeting in November of the Premier League stakeholders, another one in February, mm-hmm. and February would be the most obvious one where it would be debated and uh, would be uh, either put in place or not. Mm-hmm. I will certainly be lobbying to call it the Bruno Fernandez clause, uh, given the way that uh, we have reported on the great man and his purported move from sporting this summer, because uh, clearly if uh, any of the Premier League clubs lost a player in the three-week window after the domestic window closes, Bruno Fernandes would still be available to them. And I'm sure that's something which he looks forward to both in January and next summer. Let's move forward, Duncan, to a bit of a hobby horse of yours, as we all know, but I think also um, I think uh, a very much... Uh, Uh, An admission by PGMOL that what you've been saying all along, in actual fact, is the case because they've been telling us that VAR is perfect and is uh, the way in which we can make all decisions correctly. And yet Mike Riley, head of refereeing at uh, said organization, came out of that same meeting in central London yesterday at the Premier League stakeholders has admitted that four, yeah, four mistakes had been made by VAR in the first four match days of the Premier League season. Now, my information, Duncan, is that this was uh, not an unusual, but um, for Mike Riley to be there was, um, let's just say, uh, you know, he'd been effectively called to attend because the clubs wanted to hold PGMOL to account with regards to some decisions that VAR had made and, and not made and then also um, just against you have to say the general PR assault uh, with regards to VAR and its um, absolute uh, coherence and consistency with regards to decisions uh, he was then forced not forced but asked to give an interview in which he admitted the mistakes of VAR in the first weeks of the Premier League season. First of all, I I would ask you, one, are you surprised that uh, the mea culpa um, was produced? And secondly, if, as has been since inferred, that it's not VAR itself, but the people who are making the interpretations from the VAR system, who need to be educated and bedded in, and indeed a a further inference that it could take as much as three years for this to write itself. What is the point in the first place of putting it into action?
1: Well, (laughs) listening to what Mike Riley said, um, yes, he's admitted that there were four major mistakes Made by VAR. But that's, that's a, a generous interpretation. That's him trying to make the best of what we've had. Remember, that's four he's admitting to in 40 matches. So one in every 10 matches, he's saying they made a major mistake with the technology, with the opportunity to, to review everything. Um, They're they're making a major mistake one in every 10 games so far. The ones ones he has admitted to, David Silva, not getting a penalty um, against Bournemouth. Um, Sebastian Haller, not getting a penalty against Norwich City. Um, Both very, very clear-cut fouls. Um, The Newcastle goal um, against Watford, um, which resulted in Javi Garcia um, losing his job. Um, uh, subsequent to it, um, where a handball was not spotted, um, under the new in the, in the build up to that goal and Yuri Tielemann's, um, assault on Callum Wilson, um, of Bournemouth, which was not even seen as a foul by the referee and not given as a red card. Um, I think there's multiple other incidents that, that fans watching the Premier League this season would say VAR should have intervened Um, you know you have the Rodri penalty kick against Tottenham you have um, Raheem Sterling's armpit being declared offside by technology which has since been demonstrated doesn't have the accuracy to to make those millimetre degree decisions Um, but Riley talking about is fascinating, He, he gave a I think three interviews, one to Sky, one to BN Sports and another to um, The Times. And the one in BN Sports, he says, um, 227 times we've actually checked incidents. Out of this, we've changed six decisions and really good decisions where we've added value to the Premier League. And discussions with the club and with the referees, we think there's been another four occasions where we should have intervened. And that gives you a sense of proportion to how VAR can add value. So take him at his um, his word there and his interpretation there. He's saying they've made six really good decisions. And we're including here, you know, that Laporte um, handball that stopped Gabriel Jesus scoring uh, a winner at the end. That, that he says, has added value to the Premier League. And they've got four... Um, bad decisions wrong, and that gives you a sense of proportion to how VAR can add value. Well, look, Mike Riley, if you think six good decisions versus four bad decisions shows that VAR adds value, I think the calculation should be that that's the reason to scrap VAR. If, If all it can manage is six against four with the complexity um, the cost of it, introducing it, the fact they don't have enough referees to work on VAR and the matches, uh, Group One referees. Simultaneously, we've we've had a game where a Group One referee didn't turn up and had to have a Group Two referee put in place because of the extra demands of of VAR. You've got all the issues of the controversy, the fact that he's in front of the cameras um, after a Premier League meeting discussing the problems of its implementation. Um, you've got delays in the game you've got fans not knowing what's going on, you've got players questioning what's going on, you've got managers questioning, you've got virtually every game one of the major topics of conversation is did the VAR get it right or should the VAR have intervened, I mean we've talked in this podcast so many times about the um, unexpected um, repercussions of bringing this technology in and the Debt. Although you will get more correct decisions, you pay for it in so many different costs, which we're seeing now in the Premier League for the first time. Do you think six against four justifies that? I, I really don't understand how you can put that argument. I think six against four shows you that it, it's a mistake, it's a problem, it's a system that superficially you would think will solve problems, but what it actually shows is that most refereeing decisions are subjective decisions. If you allow another person in a a TV studio to make a subjective decision on top of the one the referee's making, then you get controversy, complications. It's inevitable. It doesn't add value, in the words of Mike Riley. It's causing problems. It's making the Premier League um, less of an enjoyable sporting product to watch, in my view.
0: Well, in the words of the best and probably the worst lawyers, Duncan, um, any case where there an admission of guilt um, is at the heart of uh, the plea, one way or the other, um, I have to say that with Javi Garcia's case, the fact that Riley has come out and said that that was a mistake, he's admitted it was a mistake, Garcia now has potentially a very lucrative lawsuit against PGMOL and the Premier League in the case of losing his job and his contract and everything else. And unfortunately, this has always been the undercurrent to VAR about in terms of, okay, UEFA, FIFA, etc., etc., administer it, but who actually can defend it in circumstances where there's controversy Or indeed, in this case, there is an admission of wrongdoing by the the people who administer VAR. And I wonder just what Garcia makes of this today um, or yesterday when it rightly made his comments and what the consequences of that will be. Because effectively, football could be thrown into a very chaotic state and also a very unusual state of um, waiting for decisions to be ruled upon. By courts, which is ludicrous, because football has always been um, a sport ruled by the governing bodies, uh, whereby the decision is final of the referees. Now we've introduced a system where the decision is not final from the referees on or the assistants as well on the pitch, and we've got a secondary and a tertiary um, opinion, like Mike Riley. Uh, introduced yesterday with regards to well yeah we have to hold our hands up and say that was wrong
1: Absolutely and you know they've tried to sort of gerrymander the rules to say the referee's decision remains final on the pitch you can always um, contradict the VAR that's written into the new rules but everyone knows now you've, you've set up a system where you're saying you've taken away what was the essence of football refereeing for over a century which is the referee's decision is final we don't expect We hope they get as many right as possible. We know they're not perfect, but you cannot argue with the referee's decision. You can't take legal action against it. You can't appeal to FIFA, UEFA or Premier League to have the thing overturned because (laughs) there's so much scope for appealing decisions. Now you've you've, you've actually brought in and formalised a system which says the referee's decision isn't final. We're going to check all of these decisions and we're going to have someone else um, in a TV studio Using elements of technology to assess whether that decision is final. And you, you've already had an African Champions League final um, requiring to be replayed because of a dispute over VAR. Um, you know, interesting, other interesting things that Riley said was that it took, he was saying that in cricket and rugby, it took more or less seven years for the technology to, to be implemented well. And you would expect a similar Process in football, and if, if they, if they, if you, if you were able to do it within two or three years, then that would be a good place to be. So, you know, saying having had his first experience of implementing it fully in the Premier League, he's, he's asking for at least three years to have a chance to get it right. Um, they've tried to do something, um, I think, positive in the context of VAR, which is to to set a high bar for intervention because they've watched it in other tournaments and in other leagues and the tendency is for VAR to get too rapidly involved and they've said let's try try and avoid that um, let's try and avoid the, the pitch side monitor use to keep the game flowing I can understand um, both of those um, arguments but it, what the Premier League is showing is that doesn't work once you introduce the VAR as a system the questions will always be, why didn't you intervene? Where is the high bar? How high should the bar be? Why didn't you intervene with that penalty claim? Why didn't you let uh, the referee have a look at it himself? Because it's possible to do it. And you've seen incidences where um, I think the Harry Kane uh, penalty claim against Newcastle where the referee was, was partially unsighted you can see the referee hoping and waiting for the VAR to to make the decision for him because he didn't have a good, as good a view of it as he would like. And without VAR, he would make a call and he'd use his instinct and use probably use the guidance from the linesman to make that decision and it would go one way or another. With the way the Premier League have implemented VAR, the tendency is for the referee to not give a decision and hope that VAR, with, it, with its imaging can make it for him. But the VAR operators have been told, don't intervene unless there's a high bar. So you then end up with this effective situation where decisions are not being made that I think previously would have been given. The penalty would be given in those circumstances. Now that the referee is reluctant to give it, hoping someone else gives it for him, and that the people he's waiting to give it for him don't want to give it because they've been instructed not to intervene unless it's absolutely clear cut. Just that it's another mess, but whichever way you implement, you get a problem somewhere down the line because the fundamental thing is refereeing decisions are subjective. Yeah, and, and not just that, and I've said this
0: on the podcast many times. Um, VER is just uh, referring the decision to another human being and their interpretation. Yeah. So why are we even doing that? Because we have officials on the pitch who are much closer to it, who are experienced and very, very good at their jobs. We have to trust them. And you know what? Yeah, they're human. They get some things wrong. And that's something we've always accepted about refereeing and football. Now we've kind of almost given over everything to the notion that, well, things can be corrected or can be made perfect and accurate 100% of the time by VAR. But in actual fact, we're just asking another person to interpret what's already been interpreted on the field. So as I've... Always said it's ad infinitum. How many times, you know, how many, how many VARs do we need to get a VAR decision correct? And it's like looking in a mirror in a in a an elevator. You know, you see your yourself ad infinitum, and you, you're not going to get any different image because it's always going to be the same thing that you come back to. And I just don't, I just don't see the point. And now Mike Riley has come out and admitted that there have been four major errors. And by the way, there's probably more than that. Um, in the first four weeks of the season, it appears to me to be uh, some somewhat kind of futile experiment. Um, why not just return to where we were before, which is we trust our officials on the field. And if sometimes they get it wrong, then fine. But most of the time they get it right. And what we don't have is this controversy over um, referrals, etc., etc. And interesting as well, Duncan, the fact that uh, Riley was defending the fact that So far, no officials have gone to the screen at the side of the field, but he personally would encourage them to if they felt there was a need to review the situation a second time.
1: Yeah, and I think that's where we'll probably end up. The pressure will be placed upon Riley to have um, officials going to the screen and checking the decisions themselves. So we'll get more interruptions and games. Look, I think the most interesting thing to come out of what he said is um, adding value to the Premier League. And I think that's the test. Does VAR add value to the Premier League? Um, From what we've seen so far, I I think it's very hard to argue that it has. And from what we've seen in the history of VAR, Um, And it's now, you know, this was first used in the major competition, the 2017 Confederations Cup. So, you know, we're over two years down the line. I don't see it adding value to football um, the way it stands. And um, I'm not sure it can be fine-tuned well enough to do so. I think the one area where you have a, (laughs) you think it could be like goal line technology is an offside decisions. So in principle, this argument that you're either on site or off site is correct. If you can get the technology fine-tuned enough um, with multiple camera angles to be able to detect to millimetre level whether someone's on or offside, and you can demonstrate that scientifically. I think that's very important. If you're going to put a system like that in place, you need to have a proper demonstration of its efficacy um, done in a scientific basis. If you can do that, great. Then we have offside decisions sorted by um, technology. But everything else, um, they're subjective. Most of them are subjective calls, and our referees are pretty good. And adding another. Guy to re-referee, the referee's decision, causes problems as we can see
0: Well, as I've said before people, and you've heard me say it, God we're asking for your intervention here please come down and tell us about VAR obviously you will be the only and the last um, person that we can trust in order to get the decision right, Uh, again brackets, add in your own person who you think is God Duncan, we discussed and we have discussed it many times, but interesting developments this week with regards to the fabled director of football uh, post-Manchester United. We reported on Monday um, that uh, Edwin van der Sar had had a meeting with Manchester United, which he found unsatisfactory uh, with regards to the authority and mandate he might have. Should he take up that role? It's since uh, become clear that Van der Sar has rejected, not rejected as such, because he wasn't offered a job. He just simply had a conversation, but is no longer interested in pursuing that particular vacancy at Manchester United. What's happened in the aftermath, however, has been um, subtle and also intriguing, and that's because uh, Manchester United, as a club, have been briefing certain people that. Um, their search for a director of football or a technical director um, is going to be one which they feel appoints uh, a person who is in tune with the current structure at the club, meaning Ed Woodward at the head of recruitment and people like Matt Judge, uh, who does negotiations as well as um, identifying targets. Um, they're also briefing that they feel like the window they had, uh, which has just closed, was a very positive one for them and the recruitment of Daniel James, Arwan Basaka and Harry Maguire. Um, it appears, Duncan, that you know, we have said this, I guess, all along, that United are not necessarily looking for someone who's going to revolutionise recruitment at the Old Trafford, but instead they're looking for a yes man to come in and basically do what they're told. By the existing administrative staff in terms of Woodward, Judge, and others, um, with regards to how things move forward. We know that three candidates have been spoken to and no one has yet been appointed. Um, what is this latest, uh, I guess, uh, development with regards to where the club are briefing? How, what does that tell us about their serious um, attitude towards appointing a serious? director of football or words that tell us about the fact of what we've been reporting all along. And that is that this is basically um, just some kind of, I don't know, facile veneer, whatever you want to call it, um, appointment, which uh, we would would still regain and retain um, all of the recruitment uh, and also um, decision-making aspects at the club without having to answer to anyone else.
1: Well, Van de Sar was asked about this during the week, um, about your story on the podcast and, um, and this potential role at Manchester United. He said, you never know. At the moment, I act as the principal sort where I'm putting all my time and effort in. And whatever happens in the future, we will see. Um, and he was also asked about stepping down from chief executive to be a technical director and, and said he was, you know, as we talked about, on the podcast, he would be open to that um, and prepared to 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 work in a different area um, down the line if um, if it suited his career development and if the opportunity presented himself. So I think you can see Van Dessau reiterating his his um, interest in working for Manchester United in this area um, at some point. But um, as you mentioned. Manchester United have briefed that he is not going to be the technical director for them. Um, and they're also briefing that they don't want the position described as director of football. They want it described as ten- technical director because it has that. Uh, he, they see that as a lesser role um, or a less powerful role, uh, as you've described. Um, so someone to come in and uh, be involved in the recruitment process, but not to make the final decisions on recruitment. So control would still remain over transfers and contracts with Edward Woodward, as it has done, um, since he became executive vice chairman, and it's a role he's um, at times publicly uh, reveled in. Um, I think the briefing and the idea that they've had a, a, a strong window um, and that they feel um, empowered by that is something that should probably concern Manchester United fans. Um, obviously, they do feel that. They, they consider that they've done good business in taking Maguire in, um, who received uh, very good press after his first game um, for the club. Uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, who started strongly. Daniel James, who has been scoring goals. Um, so there's kind of a halo Effect as far as they're concerned around those transfers. Um, the argument that they've done good business. Well, I think you'll see whether they've done good business through the, the course of the season. Um, whether they managed to qualify for the Champions League. Um, I think we already know they're not going to, they're not going to compete for the Premier League title. So you can scratch that one off. Um, but. As we discussed in the podcast, um, if it's good business, it's a very unbalanced squad they've created off the back of their good business. They've spent a lot of money, record transfer fee for a defender, um, what was a record transfer fee for a specialist fullback, still one of the the most expensive uh, fullbacks in the history of the game. Um, So a lot of cash put down for those two defensive um, improvements, and yet still conceding goals, just one clean sheet this season, just one clean sheet in the last 19 competitive matches, still making very basic mistakes leading to goals. So, um, and that's the area where most of the focus has gone. And, and as we've said, they're short in attack. Um, they're pretty one-dimensional in attack, in the sense that all their players want to play into space and want to play um, and use their use their pace to attack, so they're set up for counter attacking football. And um, they've weakened their midfield because uh, they've allowed players to go and haven't replaced them. Um, and are pretty dependent on Paul Pogba for his creativity. And lo and behold, Paul Pogba is injured for um, this weekend's match. So now they face quite a big game, I think, against Leicester City. It's quite a telling game, interesting game to watch. Um, without their key midfielder in place and with actually with, um, quite a few injuries in other areas of the team already. So I think the biggest worry for Manchester United fans would be the attempt by the club to sell this, um, pass transfer window as a good one. Um, I don't think that up to any kind of rigorous analysis. And if they think that's a good window, it would suggest um, that they don't see that there's too much extra stuff required for the team. Um, uh, Because normally a a club of Manchester United's financial stature would only come out of a transfer window and describe it as a good window if they'd got their team absolutely in a place um, where it was in, in good position to compete for its targets for the season, um, and with this team, I think that's a very um, it's very early to, to make uh, a conclusive judgment that you've got everything sorted and Champions League place will follow off the back of this summer's transfer business. I think it's important
0: to um, look at the relativity of the um, different clubs and how they did in the window and how that may pan out for them regarding the season ahead. And Manchester might claim on a standalone basis that the £150 million or so invested in one bissak and Maguire and Daniel James' money well spent. Okay, I'm not going to argue with that. I think probably that is the case. However, did it strengthen them to the point where they can challenge Liverpool and Manchester City for the Premier League title? No, is the answer to that. And Liverpool recruited no one. Manchester City did recruit well in Rodri and Cancelal. Um So they, and Manchester City are effectively less strong against their two main title contenders. So you've got to say, well... If you're going to say it's a good window, then it can't be a good window because you're not actually going to be competing realistically with your domestic rivals. Now just expand that out and ask yourself about how Manchester United's spending compares with Real Madrid's, with Barcelona, with Juventus. We've all recruited heavily and indeed um, wisely in terms of positions as well, you have to say, and we'll all be stronger. And those are the teams that um, United will be judged against in terms of where the bar is set um, in terms of their performances this season. Because domestically, it's against Man City and Liverpool and the Champions League. It's against Barcelona and Real Madrid and Juventus and, obviously, City and Liverpool. So I don't see how the club can realistically or credibly... Try to uh, convince their support that they had a good window and that somehow uh, Older Gunnar Solskjaer now has the tools at his disposal to um, magic an amazing season or a winning season in any competition, never mind the two main ones, which is clearly Champions League and Premier League. And unfortunately, and again, we've had lots of replies, Duncan, from um, Manchester United fans who are both uh, pro Edward Ed and anti-Ed Wood etc. Et where they express their cynicism with regards to this kind of hype, this kind of it's like we go back to the expected goals uh, factor that we talked about on Wednesday's podcast as well where um, one of Manchester United's um, own employees was putting out this kind of Effectively, propaganda with regards to, well, we, you know, unexpected goals would be second to Man City. Um, but that's not how titles are decided. The titles are decided on points and on performances, not unexpected goals, as they are on transfer windows and how successful you are. So I just wonder, you know, if we're, it's just, this is the next phase, Duncan, of the United um, dream, if you like, being portrayed as exactly that, the dream. Because the reality is much different.
1: Well, I mean, you, you make a comparison to the top clubs in Europe, which is a, a fair comparison to me because Manchester United are um, and have consistently been um, one of the two top revenue-earning football clubs in the world. Um, which, so one of the two top revenue-earning clubs at the, the top tier of European football. So that's where they should be um, on the football pitch is on that top tier. They're not even in the Champions League. They're so far away um, from those elite clubs that they're not even competing with the majority of them this season. The only ones they're competing with are Manchester City and Liverpool for domestic titles. They're not going to beat them, as you say, to the, the Premier League titles. They're effectively not competing for them. So their target for this season is to get back to the same table as those elite clubs. Um, and, you know, that that's how far away they are. And that's why uh, a window in which they let um, the best goal scorer over the last two seasons um, leave uh, and choose, not just let him leave, but choose to, to move him out of the club, um, let one of their most consistent um, midfielders for several seasons now leave, to one of their top tier um, rivals without getting a transfer fee, and don't replace him, uh, and um, and then spend so heavily on young, um, young, young and younger English players who, between them, haven't even played a game in the Champions League yet. And uh, I, you know, I I've said throughout, I don't think Maguire was a clever um, buy. I think Wan-Bissaka is a player with a lot of potential, a great one-on-one defender who can, can be turned into um, a top-level uh, full-back. But Maguire, I think, is, is going to prove to be a mistake, and you already see the, the signs of it. But to portray it as a good window and to try and argue, it's a, it's a good window, and it's um, it's so far away from getting them to where they need to be. I think it could end up backfiring on them. Um Once we get to the end of the season, we find out what the actual results have been uh, with those players in place and under uh, the manager they have in charge of.
0: In the context of that very debate, um, we're going to do our legendary quickfire round, which is one that you, as listeners, would probably not expect, because normally we do a Super Sunday, Super Size Sam, Super Saturday, whatever you want to call it, quick fire round based on the um, top six teams playing against each other. But on this particular Friday edition of the Transfer Window podcast, we're actually going to do a combined Manchester United versus Leicester team. And you take that and interpret it as how you will. But maybe that's how far United have fallen in terms of uh, what Duncan's just been talking about. Uh, both domestically and in the european sense, so um, I think it's going to be quite fun duncan i 'm looking forward to it and i 'm going to ask you to name the goalkeeper first and then we 'll do a four two three one formation and see what we come up with with regards to how many united and lesser state players get in there
1: yeah, and we're going to break the rules for this because Manchester United. <laughs> normally. You always break the rules in the quickfire round. It's never a quickfire. Well, normally, normally we exclude injured players to make it more interesting. We do. Um, be but fair, because, yeah. because um, Manchester United under this um, super duper high intensity pre-season, um, fitness is everything uh, regime that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer have introduced have got so many injuries entering just the fifth week of the Premier League season, um, including a couple of uh, key players in Pogba.
0: Well, let's just, let's just yeah, Pogba, Martial, Luke Shaw, Wanda-Saka. Lingard, wan are all, are all big doubts, aren't they? So, so we right, no, Well, we're explain to us them. then what you're going to do.
1: Gonna them. We're going to include them to make it fairer on Manchester United. Um, so, we're,
0: so thinking- we're actually con- we're giving a concession to Manchester United on the basis that they would have a better players if they were fit.
1: Yeah, we're going to do that, it. That you're says, assuming, that says assuming, so much. Assuming everyone in each of their squads was fully fit, what the the best combined eleven would be?
0: Does that mean Galanica's got a shout to, to centre forward? Then? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe at right wing.
0: <laughs>
1: um, so the goalkeeper, uh, David De Gea. I think we can get that one out of the way.
0: So I well. think. I think that's fair. fair. That's fair. You, All right, right, we go
1: right back with. Um, Juan Basaka,
0: who I think, as you said, Duncan, in the previous segment, um, has been very, very good. He's extremely um, uh, com- uh, competent in terms of his one-to-one uh, challenges, and uh, if anything, you know, the fifty to fifty-five million pounds that Manchester United spent on him on, in the summer to get him, I think, I'm confident will you know, turn out to be good value.
1: Right, first centre-back, I'm going to have a um, player that I mentioned that uh, a Leicester City source told me was more important to their defence last season than the player they sold for £85 million. Um And I'm going to have Johnny Evans in as one of the two centre-backs in this combined 11.
0: Magnificent. And I'm going to go for um, the guy who is going to be under most scrutiny, uh, I think, in this particular match, given he's returning play against his old team and of course Evans and Maguire could um, play in half and half shirts Uh, I'm sure they won't be but uh, it'd be very interesting if they did so I'm going to go Harry Maguire
1: at central defence as well Um, Left back I think is easy Um, it has to be Ben Chilwell who's um, I think a margin above anything uh, Manchester United have in that position and and it looks like he can get better and better as a fullback. Another Brendan
0: Rogers, absolutely fantastic um, uh, ways of adapting a player and making him even better. Um, I'm sure you agree with that, Duncan. I know you're a big fan of Brendan.
1: Um, <laughs> That's so be that would be the bench, although, that Brendan would happily have sold in the summer if he'd been given the opportunity, yeah?
0: Listen, Harry Redknapp tried to sell Gareth Bale so like, to Nottingham Forest, so you know, let's just choose our battles where we can. Um, double pivot, I'm going to go for Yuri Tielemans, who I think has been exceptional um, since his move to Leicester City. Uh, yes, he's a bit of a hatchet man, as Mike Riley pointed out yesterday, which I don't think he's going to do many favours with referees going forward. But um, I'll have Telemans
1: in my double pivot. Yeah, I think the double pivot. There's an argument for having Wilfred and Didi in there, um, but um, structuring the team so you've got you've got to have Paul Pogba and James Madison both in this team because they're the two best creative players in the two squads. So we'll play at Pogba where he doesn't like to play, which is as one of two holding midfielders. Um, but again, I'm in
0: that side So classic Pogba on one leg Rather than Didi on two
1: <laughs>
0: Fair enough uh, Right wing, we've got a little bit of a, kind of a conflict here Because um, United have struggled at right wing um, And I've and not really found the answer As yet, I think To um, where they should be going with that one and I don't think that lesser have either, because Damari Gray, who is my pick for that particular position, has not featured heavily under Brendan Rodgers this season. But I think his pace, his skill, and his ability to um, get beyond um, his defender on the right side uh, and then get the cross, and I think, puts him in prime position to uh, take up that position in the four-two-three-one.
1: Yeah, I think I'd have Damari Gray of, of your choices at right Wing at present. I think it's a it's a questionable position for both teams. Um, you could maybe even play Ricardo Pereira there, who's unfortunate not to be in it right back, because he has uh, proved his, his worth in his season so far in the Premier League. Number 10, as I said already, that would be James Madison. I don't think there's there's any doubt you've got to have him in the team. And, um, maybe it'd be nice if, for Manchester United if they could get him in the team going forward. It certainly fits the profile of players that um, Ed Woodward has been trying to focus on, young and British.
0: Well, stories, Duncan, in, in the uh, British press today, with regards to Manchester United's um, interest in Madison, something reported on the 3rd of June with regards, to, and you've mentioned already in the podcast, um, and I think Madison is someone who uh, well, listen, I think he plays brilliantly for, let's say, um, but he would be an, an excellent addition to Manchester United's squad because he moves plays so quickly from middle to, to final third. Um, and I think with Madison, uh, Manchester United could definitely, definitely benefit from having him in their team. And of course, he's also got that um, profile, which they seem to be pursuing, of being young, English and talented. So yeah, I agree with that. On the left, I don't think there's really, uh, you know, any kind of um, competition here. I think Dan James has been brilliant for Manchester United. I don't think anyone should take away from the way that he has um, performed. But not only that, adapted to the big time. This is a kid who has never played Premier League football before, but has three goals already in his first four games as a Manchester United player. And not only that, skillful creates chances, etc, etc and I think probably will cause a lot of problems for what might be a slightly flat-footed uh, Leicester City defence, so I'm going to go for Dan James on the left side of the four-two-three-one,
1: Which leaves the central centre forward yes um, It can't be Marcus Rashford given that he's decided he doesn't want to play centre forward anymore um, doesn't seem to like scoring goals all that much from what he's been doing on the field of late. Anthony Martial, um, very inconsistent player when he wants it, when he's focused, um, can be a top line forward. But how often do we see that from him? Um, So I think the options: Jamie Vardy, who's been a consistent goal scorer at uh, at Premier League level for some time now. And, if you had to bank on one of those three, I think you'd you'd choose Vardy. So, Vardy takes the last place in the team. Well, I agree with you on that,
0: Duncan. I think Vardy's been rejuvenated under Brendan Rodgers. Uh, he is clearly back to his confident best. If you look at the way he's been scoring goals, lobbing goalkeepers, uh, getting in there in the inside channel, left or right, um, taking on that long ball pass. Which has been his trademark with regards to um, going at goalkeepers, and so yeah, for me Vardy is someone who I think you know could well um, resurrect his reputation. And I noticed as well that Gareth Southgate did not rule out a England call-up, even though the player himself declared his international retirement. So um, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out over the next two international breaks in October. Um, uh, and we shall see how that goes we will be back with you guys on Monday um, as always Uh, and we are very very happy to engage with you as you know Um, if you can contact us via App Transfer podcast at Duncan Castles at Garbo SG we're very happy to take up the debate and talk to you individually with regards to what we've been speaking in the podcast and a lot of things as well. Um, as you know, we're, um, we're comfy, we're mates, so therefore get in touch. Um, if you like what you hear, and uh, we know that you do, please log on to iTunes and give us a five-star review and we can expand this community of debate and football chat as much as we would like to. Um, until Monday when we're back with the Transfer Window podcast, it's left for me to say thank you for listening, but we'll see you then and goodbye.